Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you'd like a free sample copy, go to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Today I'm speaking with Natalie Collins, a gender justice specialist who writes and speaks on the issue of domestic abuse. She's just released her first book, Out of Control, Couples, Conflict and the Capacity for Change. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. So tell me a bit about your faith. Did you grow up a Christian? Yeah, so I grew up in the north of England, as my accent may betray. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, was, I grew up in a, a Christian home. My parents uh, got together um, and hadn't come from Christian homes and discovered the Christian faith together. Um, and so they, um, they'd become very, I mean, were conservative, but very uh, kind of a, a faith which was very much about relying on God. So I remember growing up and uh, us praying about needing money and money just appeared from somewhere and you know my mum would have this purse for tithing and you know we church was really was really important part of my growing up I remember one one time we couldn't go to church and I insisted we did church at home and we had a vitalite tub for the collection you know and so I was yeah kind of my faith and growing up in in and this was very a very significant part of my understanding of myself and the world was Christianity and you're a gender justice specialist. Yes. What on earth is that? Well, I, I made the title up because I do so many different things that I was trying to work out like one thing I could put it into. A friend of mine said, oh, when I saw that signature, I thought I'd really like to be one of those. How do you become one? I was like, well, I just sort of made it up. But um, <laughs> I, I started off delivering programs for women in the community who'd been subjected to abuse by a partner. And then um, from there, I started to work with Christians um, on the issue of abuse. Then and I wrote a program for young people called the Day Program, which is about abuse and exploitation and, and is really about trying to be preventative. So I train practitioners across the UK to run that program. I wrote a Christian version of that program, which looks at theology with young people. I then started working on things around pornography and uh, masculinity and child sexual exploitation and, you know, all the fun topics, uh, female genital mutilation. You know, nobody wants to sit next to me at a dinner party like, oh, what do you do? And <laughs> Um, so so yeah so I was doing all these different things um and then I was doing quite a lot of media work and being asked oh what what should we call you because there was like a, a nice title um so I used the term gender justice specialist to try and capture that all of the stuff I do is to do with the idea of inequality um and as a Christian I think that 
equality is a, is a term that feels quite optional that and actually can feel quite counter theological ideas of what it is to be kind of somebody who follows Jesus and, and giving up power and all that kind of stuff and so I think justice is something that is a gospel imperative and so for me I feel like gender justice specialist sums up all the stuff I do and, and the values with which I do it. What do you see currently as the barriers to full equality? Um, between the sexes in church in church particularly I think it's very difficult to isolate the equality issues and the issues for women in the church from the wider society um so we don't live you know some people might think that the church is a bubble separate to the world but actually we are we are in, embedded within a culture and so we can't separate issues of sexualization and objectification of women from the experiences that women have in the church um things around purity culture and this idea that women should wear certain clothes or be a certain way so i think it's a it's complicated to say what is the issue in church I think it's very multifaceted I think if we start with um, a baby girl or even before that if we look at uh, the issues in terms of women being forced into pregnancy um, is the first step in terms of that 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 being an issue and then when a baby girl is born the way that she will be related to will be different than a baby boy um, then those expectations grow and in church we very much um, adhere to for the most part gender stereotypes around raising boys and girls um, so that will come into play and then as they get into being young people the expectations are that boys are all going to be very interested in sex and girls aren't really going to be interested in sex and so that then plays, plays a part um, as those boys and girls get into young adulthood the ones that are going to be uh, tracked into leadership roles will often be male um, that girls will have to really push if that's something they feel called to they might be in a church context where women don't have any roles that are visible on the platform or that kind of stuff and so they haven't really got any way of thinking that's even something they want to do um, or they might be in a church where women can have uh, leadership roles but not in the church so they can be a GP or they can be a politician but they're not allowed to take, do that within the church and so so there's all sorts of things so I don't think there's just one thing there's theological ideas that say that men and women have have different roles and that's um, a God-ordained scriptural thing so I think that what comes into play that? so in terms of the theological roles that um men and women have well I would hold to what is known as an egalitarian position so this idea that we are called according to the gifts that we have not according to um, our male or femaleness is not really relevant in terms of how God calls us um, however that you know there are the other position generally is complement the complementarian position which would say actually there's a very clear scriptural ideal that men and women have different roles and are called to different things because of those roles so so I would hold the egalitarian position um and 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 so would seek to see both men and women leading together in partnership mm. would you look to the bible as as sort of evidence for that position in the same way that that the that the complementarians would say well these are the scriptures that sort of support our argument yeah so i think um my entry into being very committed to egalitarianism 
was actually not through theology or it was through having an understanding of male violence and, and that, that there is an issue with men abusing women that is much more significant than the amount of women that are abusing men. And so it was actually not through, through kind of a theological conversation, but this realisation that when women don't have positions um, of, of leadership in the church, that contributes to a perception of women and men having very different roles and those different roles can perpetuate ideals of men having to be in charge of women which can lead to domination over women um but yeah absolutely i would argue that theologically um the bible the bible has i mean it's one of those things where everybody can take the bible and say the bible says that women shouldn't be able to do these things or the bible says that they should be able to do these things so i think it's it just depends on which text you focus on i would mm. suggest that the in genesis pre the fall there's very little indication of different roles for men and women somebody who's complementarian would say there is um and then i would say things like when uh god creates eve um that he creates a health helper suitable for her is one of the texts um and actually i would argue that the word helper there is used most often of god so it doesn't suggest some sort of subservient role um and that and that actually the the ter term suitable when you look at the original language is this idea of standing face to face with so actually equal partner would be as useful a, 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 a translation and and so then when you get into the new testament people will focus on um ephesians and say well it says wives submit to your husbands i would um be more interested in the fact that that comes in the context of submitting to one another in love and um, but equally you know you get somebody here who would hold a different theological position and they could quite articulately argue why i'm wrong and so to some degree i think um as much as i i am convicted that the bible um does have the position of egalitarianism i also believe this because my experience of god has been that god is entirely liberating to women and that liberation does not mean placing any limits or restrictions on how women can serve god but in terms of male headship do you do you see any difference between headship as a concept in church and heads, headship as a as a concept in the family or would you reject both of those i think that both are actually fundamentally quite harmful um i don't think everybody who practices male headship is harming either themselves or a partner or i'm not i'm not saying it in a kind of that that way but i think that this idea that men hold some greater responsibility than women for anything is really problematic i've spoken to some complementarians and they say I said you know when we strip it back what is it that you really believe and they said you know when I get to heaven I'm going to be more responsible for my wife's sin than she is and I was like I just, that's not something that I see in scripture so so that was that was somebody saying that that's how they see it so I think what's really problematic about male headship is that it ends up with a load of theological kind of stuff that's not even what most theological theologians who are complementarian would actually adhere to but it kind of gets caught up in stuff that people pick up so I think headship is a really I don't think it's a very helpful thing and I, I don't think it enables mutual flourishing I think it puts un, unhealthy unnecessary responsibility on men to do stuff that I don't think enables them to flourish and I think it limits women in ways that I don't think enables women to flourish either and Natalie you set up an organization called Project 328 um, which monitors the number of women at 
Christian festivals who are given a platform. Have you seen any improvement in female representation since you started the project in 2014? Yes, we have. So um, it has been really great. So um, in 2014, um, after uh, some some new stuff that happened in the States with Rachel Held Evans, who was um, one of the people who kind of inspired this really, um, was uh, there was a journalist, uh, Jonathan Merritt, who he counted one, one um, set of events in, in America. And we were just like, there was a woman called Helen Austin in the UK who said, Where's that in the UK? And I was like, right, I'll get on counting. And so, I mean, it, it's become a project, but basically what it is, is a group of us who spend our time counting how many men and women on programmes around the UK. And thankfully, um, events like Spring Harvest are now really brilliant in collecting that data themselves. And that's really shows that that level of um, commitment has really grown. Um, and so, yeah, so we've, we've seen the platform increase from 25% women in 2014, and we're now up to 38% women. Um, and it's it's really something about events, I think, to some degree, there was no accountability. If there was one woman and 10 men on a platform, you'd go, oh, well, this event is pro-women because there's a woman. Um, and so when we did the stats the first time, people were like, this isn't surprising. We all know it's not great. But for some people, they were like, I can't believe it's that bad. Um, and so, yeah, so we've seen this increase and it's a gradual, for most the most part, it is this gradual year-on-year -year incremental change. And for us, it's not about people making big gestures of, oh, we'll get like loads and loads of women. It's about creating a culture which says we are we recognize that there are particular barriers for women g gaining opportunities and so we're going to work very methodically to to overcome those barriers and to enable women to to lead too. We know that women who speak out in on feminist issues tend to get quite a lot of abuse on on social media and that sort of thing. Have you has that been the the case for yourself? It has um it has its challenges. I think um most of the time it's fine and I I sort of have a rule around positive intentions I assume, I assume even when somebody's being negative or disagreeing with me that they're not they don't hate me and that this isn't like you know that, that, that there's abuse it's actually that they they just have a very different perspective and I think a lot of the problems we have in the church is this idea that the people we disagree with hate us or don't want human flourishing generally in the church we all want human flourishing we just have very different ideas of how you get there and so there's something about the honoring of positive intentions that hopefully opens a different sort of space um but yeah i mean mostly not from christians occasionally i get uh, stuff from christians telling me i should i should be ashamed to be a christian and you know being very very negative um but on one occasion i i accidentally i didn't realize this guy that i'd replied to on Twitter was um, a really well-known comedian who was slightly misogynistic who shared my tweets with his followers and it led to days and days of just this onslaught of abuse abuse towards me and I think it's one of those things that's really interesting that I've I've had debates online with um, Christian men who don't you know have argued with me and then they'll use things like oh I've been abused or I've been badly treated when actually what they've experienced is someone disagreeing with them and there's this kind of double standard that just because somebody's disagreed with them that's abusive and what they haven't had is like people sending them graphic sexual images or be calling them horrific names or you know that kind of stuff which is which is has been part of what I've experienced but I wouldn't say is the majority and as a feminist and a Christian do you find it difficult to articulate your position um, on certain issues so I'm thinking of abortion in terms of you know that's kind of seen as traditionally a, fem a well feminists would see it as a pro pro-choice 
issue and um, Christians see it as a pro-life issue. Do you find an, any tensions being a feminist Christian on those kinds of ethical issues? Yeah, I think um, one of the clear clear things is Christianity and feminism are not the same thing. I um, don't think Jesus was a feminist. <laughs> Jesus was like a first century Jewish man and there's already a debate about whether men can actually be feminists. So I think we have to be careful about co-opting Jesus into our narrative. And if Jesus was a feminist, that means any Christian who doesn't say they're a feminist, how do they get to be a follower of Jesus? And so I think it's really problematic for us to, to you know, we can't call Jesus a social Socialist, a feminist or whatever it is that we want or capitalist or you know a complementarian that Jesus was um who was was the savior of the world and so it's more complicated than that and um, and I think probably the biggest challenge I find as the um the dichotomy between feminism and Christianity is that um Christianity requires us to die to ourselves it requires us to be willing to sacrifice ourselves um and feminism is all about women taking ownership of themselves and saying I I, sh I should have rights I should be uh, kind of being treated equally I should fight against the awful things that are going on for women either for myself or for up for my sisters and so that I think probably over all the other all the other things fundamentally that's where the, the biggest challenge comes is this idea that um that that how do we how do I hold together this idea of as a Christian I should be dying to myself but as a feminist I should be fighting for my rights and I think that you know that that, that can come into the the abortion debate mm -hmm. but I think for me part of that is because um so for instance one of the one of the challenges within the feminist movement is we've never really had a figure like Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement we haven't had a figure who has kind of preached love as the solution to to the revolution really and part of that's because whereas for um within the civil rights struggle the way that black people were dehumanized was to to s make them not fully human and what uh what Martin Luther King said was well if we love we are more human and so love was the antidote to this dehumanization that happened through slavery and, and, and racism and still does happen. However, within the feminist movement, the challenge is that one of the ways that women is oppressed by having to be giving and compassionate and empathic and being a mother and giving themselves all the time. And so almost it's almost one of the tools of women's oppression is being compassionate and loving. And so how do you then say, but compassion and love are the solution when they're at for lots of women they're they're one of the ways that we are really really damaged and really expected to to lay down and ask which way do you want me to walk to walk over me today and so I think there is a real tension and I I personally have kind of come to the way of processing that and coming out the other side by saying by believing that actually the problem for Christianity is that it hasn't always recognized the ways that women are uniquely oppressed and challenged and and the way that sin particularly hurts women and so before we as women can own our to, before we can give ourselves up we have to learn to own ourselves we have to learn to take ownership of ourselves and say actually God doesn't require me to be a doormat God actually thinks I'm really awesome and God has chosen to love me and we have to be willing to own ourselves before we can die to ourselves and so that's one of the ways that I think feminism is has been a really important part of me gaining ownership of myself so that then I can choose to die to, to myself and I guess I see that the feminist heart for justice and the and listening to women and hearing women is something that we often don't see in the church as much as we could could do with seeing. yeah and 
bringing it back to the, that issue of abortion, when you're talking about love and compassion, would you apply that to love and compassion for the woman who's desperate to not be pregnant? Or do you apply that, that idea to the child who would probably like to live? How, how do you kind of make those distinctions? Well, this is the question, isn't it? And I think the reason why abortion is so complicated is because you've got, um, because God created us to be interconnected, that we don't exist independently of each other, that the woman does, that men, the only way we can make a baby is for a man and a woman to create that baby. And the only way that baby can live is if the woman carries it inside her. And so we're not disconnected human beings, but it also means that sin affects us in ways that are really, really horrific. And so, um, for instance, rape and sexual violence can lead to somebody becoming pregnant. And so suddenly it becomes a much more complicated conversation and um I think there's a there's a, a, a Mormon blogger who talks about the fact that all abortions are the fault of irresponsible ejaculation. That actually women can only get pregnant a few days every month, and and actually that if men you know men choose not to use condoms because it's slightly less pleasurable, even though the implications for women of them not using a condom, them not taking responsibility, can be so so huge for women. And so I think that that makes this issue hugely complex because the way that the focus of this is always on what women should be doing and not really on what men should be doing and so you know there's I mean this Mormon blogger on the extreme was like you know we should give all men a vasectomy <laughs> and when they're ready to have children they can have it reversed and that's it and I know scientifically it's not quite that simple but actually um it's really interesting how what we find is so much of the time these conversations and laws are around abortion are really about um, controlling what women can do. Very rarely are conversations about unwanted pregnancy, about how men can stop impregnating women when they don't want to be pre pregnant. And um, in the UK, one in seven women has been subjected to a reproductive, coercion, um, reproductive coercion, either forced into pregnancy or forced into abortion. And so I think it's a very complex one. And we have these very simple kind of answers well is is the priority is the priority the baby being born or is the priority the woman you know kind of having her choice um one of the things i would say is i don't think anybody enters into abortion lightly um and I think uh, absolutely there are people who choose abortion and they, they would say it's not affected them in any way. And that actually that was their choice. And um, and as somebody who was pregnant at 17 in a very complex situation and didn't really have a choice about being pregnant, um, the consequences of, of the choice that I chose to continue that pregnancy, as much as I love my daughter and would not have made another choice, I, I'm i in the position of somebody who could be, you know, that, that advocate going, well, I, my child's here and this is how it should be. But actually, having gone through my daughter's now 16 having gone through 16 years of very complex stuff around that I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to force anybody into that so I think the thing about about not about abortion being a legal means is that somebody doesn't have a choice to to keep a baby or to, to remain pregnant I think that's really problematic so when I um a few years ago I was involved in um a project um about young motherhood and and the Guardian had run something about this project it was about women who'd had um children as teenagers and um and it said something on the Guardian headline about oh um 
the why we're glad we chose to be teenage mothers and I remember looking at it and thinking I need to ring up the editor I didn't choose this this wasn't something that I made a choice to do this was something that was I was subjected to as a result of abuse and and then actually it dawned on me that because I chose to keep my child because I chose not to have an abortion I did make a choice and that was like really profound and revelatory to me like wow like I wasn't just a victim of this situation I made a choice in this situation where I I had some power and I chose to do to do that but the idea that I would be in a in a in a world where or anybody would be in my situation be in a world where that choice was taken away from them particularly in a world that doesn't um take maternal health as seriously it should that doesn't do the things it should do I think that's a very very dangerous thing to think about and I think you know when we talk about being pro-life what does that mean does that mean that we are campaigning for things like in the UK we've got the tax credit credit rape clause which means that if a woman has more than two children um, she doesn't get tax credits for her third child or her, her fourth child and so um, the only way she can get tax credits is if she's been um, raped and if she's been impregnated against her will now that will have a bigger impact on how many women take choose to have abortion than um, the fact that abortion exists you know if you can't afford to feed your children and I have not seen any of the pro-life charities in the UK campaigning for an end to that to that brutal and horrific policy of the two-child tax credit policy and so for me fundamentally I think that when we talk about being pro-life unless that involves proactively doing lots of things campaigning against unjust policies it's problematic to use the term pro-life unless you're doing all of that. That brings us to the end of part one of today's show. But join us again to hear more from Natalie Collins right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Old Testament stories containing the torture, rape or murder of women come under the spotlight. In light of the Me Too movement, we ask, as Christians, how should we read these passages today? Plus, find out what true racial diversity could look like in our churches and discover the article your pastor wishes you'd read but is too embarrassed to ask. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell, Deputy Editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the monthly magazine that sponsors this show. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But for now, time to rejoin my interview with Natalie Collins. Let's listen in. You've recently published your first book. I have. Uh, So that is called Out of Control, Couples Conflict and the Capacity for Change. Natalie, what's it all about? Well, I um it's it's about it's for Christians and it's I mean it's accessible to non-Christians. So when I kind of go into the weird kind of Christian stuff, I'm like, don't worry, we'll get out of this bit in a minute. So um so it is accessible for non-Christians, but I wrote it having worked with Christians for 
almost a decade on issues around abuse and coming up again and again against against the same challenges and the same problems around people not really understanding abuse. One of the big issues is that most of the time when somebody is dealing with a situation of abuse in their church or um, in their family, they misdiagnose it as a relationship issue. They say, oh, this is, they're just having a relationship issue. It's, it's just a difficult situation. And, you know, let's get them some counselling. Let's send them on the marriage course. And actually what's going on is somebody is being abusive. And, and, and so when you misdiagnose abuse as a relationship problem or as mental health issues, or anger management problems actually the way that you will respond will be really harmful and could really damage somebody it could at, at the worst lead to somebody being killed to somebody murdering their partner or their children and so um i really wanted to write a book that would equip christians to respond in a much more effective way and to be able to diagnose the problem for what it is so that's why it's called couples conflict in the capacity for change to try and look at well is this just a regular conflict or is there something more going on so it's written in a i suppose as an accessible way as possible it's written to to it is a pretty miserable dark topic but as much as possible we try to kind of you know make it a bit less miserable and you know think about eating cake at the big bad, the bad bits and um, so yeah so it's not just about what is abuse and why does somebody perpetrate abuse how do we it's also about how we recover understanding sexual violence how do we raise children to make good choices in relationships and understanding some of the implications about what we understand about domestic abuse in terms of masculinity and how as the church do we do we think about manhood and 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 being a woman and all those kind of things and unfortunately you've had sort of first-hand experience of abuse you were in a uh, in a marriage that was uh, that was very abusive can you just tell us a little bit about that time in your life and and particularly how God used that to almost hone your vocation and 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 your calling um, into what you do now yeah, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? There's this, um, you know, sometimes Christians have sort of said to me, oh, you know, well, God let you go through that so that you could, you know, so he could use you. I like, I don't think God's that utilitarian. If God loves us, like a parent loves a child, actually God doesn't want us to go through terrible stuff. God doesn't put us through stuff, but God is so good that no matter how terrible something is, God finds a way to bring goodness from the terribleness, not that God plans it or ordains it. Um, and so, yeah, when I, I as, as we talked about, I grew up in a Christian home and I loved Jesus and I got to be a teenager. And my understanding as a teenager and as a Christian was that the way that you, as, you be a Christian teenager is you don't have sex before marriage. That's the entirety of how you be countercultural. You You just don't have sex. And because everyone else is having sex, then that's how you witness the gospel, that you will save the world through your virginity until you get married, obviously. And so, um, and so basically that's, this was my approach. I was like, I'm, I'm not gonna have sex before marriage. And then I met a boy who was beautiful. And I just thought that he loved me from the moment that I met him. And, um, and he turned out to not actually be very safe. He, I thought he was a Christian. I'd met him through friends who said he'd recently become a Christian. Um, and so I was like, that's it. He ticks the two boxes. You know, he's a Christian and we're not going to have sex. There we are. Like, we're, we're, this is it. 100% sex education. 
I'm fine. And uh, and so I started this relationship and within 12 days he'd manipulated me into sleeping with him because in Christian culture we, we're taught not to have sex but we're not taught anything about consent. And so when I was being pushed into doing things that I didn't want to do, I thought the reason I felt bad was because I was betraying Jesus. I didn't know it was because he was making me do things that were that I didn't want to do. It wasn't, it wasn't I was betraying Jesus. He was sexually abusing me. And so... Uh, 12 days in I'd um, slept with him and then that was it I thought well I've got to marry him now that's the only solution (laughs) which is quite problematic really and it's not necessarily that anyone in church sat me down and said the minute you have sex that's it you're married but that's the conclusion that I came to from this cultural framework of purity and so uh, 12 days in I'm then convinced I've got to marry him Um, it emerged quite quickly that he wasn't really a Christian Um, he became increasingly manipulative and controlling he would cheat on me with lots of different girls and and I just kept on thinking well if I forgive him and love him enough then that will that will save everything was this after you were married um no so this was before I got married so this was all before even marrying him um so I and and I just thought this is it if I if I love him enough forgive him enough Jesus will save him because that's how it works mm. um and it didn't really work like that it just meant that he continued to treat me really badly and um, he wouldn't use contraception um and so within six months I was pregnant um and my family my parents were ragingly pro-life <laughs> and so the one thing I knew was that like abortion was bad mm. and so I um it was the one of the only times that I stood up to him and I said I you know I won't um have an abortion and so um so then I'm pregnant so he 17. wanted you to have an abortion yeah him and his family all wanted mm. me to have an abortion um but when I wouldn't um the relationship continued um so we were then we I had my daughter when I was 18 and then um we got married a few months later and so then I'm I'm married to him. And, you know, people are like, well, you know, why why did you marry him? And um, when you grow up in Christian culture and it says that marriage, you know, marriage is kind of the thing. That's what you've got to do. You've got to get married. If you sleep with someone, you've got to marry him. And marriage, like, you know, will save us or something, you know. And, and if anybody's watching this and kind of identifies with that, Jesus did not die for anybody's marriage. He died for us. And so we've got to be really careful not to make marriage and 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 our spouse an idol um and so anyway so I ended up then married to him and he um by the time we were both 19 he'd been convicted of sex offenses against teenage girls um and I um I thought well if I just love him and forgive him it'll all be okay which also then meant not only was he abusing me but because it was public knowledge that I was married to a sex offender I once got punched in the face by a neighbor um so it was this horrific situation and and he he made me think that I was worth nothing that I was stupid ugly and fat and that everything that he did wrong was my fault and um that was about um what often is known as gaslighting now this idea of making somebody believe it's all their fault um and I just kept on thinking, but if I love him enough, then Jesus will save him and everything will be perfect. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was awful. He was very sexually abusive. And I thought, well, as his wife, I have to submit to whatever he wants. Um, I don't think I really even understood that sexual abuse could exist between two adults, <laughs> be it from one adult to another adult in an adult relationship. I thought this was kind of an a chi- adult to child thing. And so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm in my uh, kind of, you know, 18, 19, 20 with just 
I was absolutely decimated by this on one occasion I started taking an overdose and I was taking loads of tablets and he uh, locked myself in the bathroom and he managed to get into the bathroom and he saw me taking these tablets and um and he was on the phone at the time and he just started saying to me go on take another one take another one take another one and just like goading me into um suicide um and thankfully I didn't it didn't I didn't die um and I was just absolutely devastated but if you'd have asked me at that time oh you know so you were being abused I would have said no it's not abuse like no he's just he's just got a really he's had a really difficult time and you know I wind him up and it's you know it's just it's just difficult stuff um I got referred to a women's aid service a domestic abuse service and they were like oh you could come in a refuge and I was like I don't need a refuge it's not it's not abusive so I think there's a huge issue where even when we're being abused we don't we we misdiagnose it as a, something that it's not and unless we can be admit to ourselves it is abuse and that's a really hard journey because if it's abuse I have to do something if it's abuse then it's not just going to magically get better if I just pray enough or if I just do the right thing because it's, if it's abuse it's not it's nothing like it's not my it's not me it's mm. actually him um yeah what about that moment when you ended up in hospital with your um little baby who was born premature because of abuse? yeah so my ex-husband assaulted me and then um, my son was born premature and uh people often are like oh you i wouldn't have expected this to be your story oh i didn't i didn't think it would be like you would be like this i've been told that i'm too tall to be abused i'm not young in i'm too young to be abused i'm not shriveled up enough um and and what's interesting is you know people will watch this or hear this and they'll think oh well she doesn't sound like one of those types of people who's abused there is no such thing as that sort of person actually the only thing that we have in common is that we had the misfortune of meeting an abuser um and so uh i i didn't be cut get some sort of strength from somewhere to get out it wasn't like i suddenly thought this is it i'm i'm a strong courageous woman i will i'm empowered and i'll leave it was that my son was um born premature and and me and my daughter who was two and a half ended up living in a hospital with him for about five months he was only two pounds six when he was born and um and so it was that circumstance of being forcibly removed from the same town that led me to start seeing this is this is his fault the reason that my tiny tiny baby is so tiny and is in this plastic box and and I've got this two and a half year old who's keeps on doing observations on her baby dolls because this is what she thinks is normal um that I started to realize oh my goodness this is wrong and and I think for so many women it doesn't matter what they do what the abuser does to us it's when they hurt somebody that we care about that we love that they that suddenly we realize this isn't okay and because actually the abuser all of their tactics are designed to strip us of our selfhood. They're designed to strip us of anything that gives us strength. And this is one of the things that I think Christians don't often understand that actually if somebody is an abuser and they're in the church, they will be stripping their partner of the gospel that gives them strength and and the gospel will be stripped of any liberation and it will be a weapon to beat their partner with and so it's really important that we recognize that's what's going on and don't just think oh well you know he's just struggling or whatever this is an intentional deliberate act and it is getting in the way of somebody's relationship with god very seriously and so yeah so i was i was living in this hospital i did report him to the police um he was found not guilty in the end due to um, he uh, convinced me into various contacts with him during the court case, um, which then led to the him being found not guilty. 
and um and it was it was absolutely horrific it was absolutely devastating i was 21 i ended up being a single parent with a premature baby a toddler um living in a i ended up moving away from uh my hometown because i thought if i go back there i'll end up back with him so um moved up to the north of england and um I think my faith really, I'd, I'd always known God and always loved God, but the time when I discovered who God was for myself was uh, when we were, when he was, when Joshua, my son was first in hospital, I um he, I felt God said to me, and it was the first time God had really spoken to me. I wasn't one of those people that God speaks to. Um, and then God said to me, you need to stop praying for Joshua to live and you need to pray for my will to be done. And if he lives or dies, you need to love me the same. And I, and I just was like, what you know this god who i'd lived my whole life wanting to love and you know all that kind of stuff suddenly wasn't even going to give me hope he wasn't going to be like a magical fairy godmother who was going to magically make uh you know make everything better um but actually there was something hugely liberating in choosing not to try to make it all better and just accepting that actually I can't do this on my own I've tried to do this I've lived in a relationship with somebody who was so abusive um and actually now I'm being offered freedom from that I'm being offered an opportunity to choose God um even if it means losing everything and so living in that hospital that's what that's what I did I said I'm gonna choose to love you regardless of what happens and uh miraculously Joshua did survive he's now 13 and really awesome and my daughter's now um 16 um and so it, it was like this huge journey but from that point onwards I've just tried to do what God said I've just tried to be obedient to God do go where God tells me to do what God tells me to and in the process of discovered that this God that I grew up knowing a bit about and then met in that hospital is the source of all liberation and all transformation but often that won't look necessarily how we expect it to. Did you find that your relationship with God helped you to forgive your ex-husband after, um, presumably after some time? Did Were you able to get to that point of forgiveness and was that through your relationship with God? I think forgiveness is a complicated one. So forgiveness was a part of how my ex-husband continued to abuse me because I thought I just have to keep forgetting what he's done if I just wipe the slate clean this kind of psalm 51 not you know it's interesting because that psalm when it talks about forgiveness it talks about God's forgiveness of us it doesn't necessarily suggest that we can wipe the slate clean of what someone else does because we're always left with the consequences of someone's harm towards us my son always has difficulties because of being premature like I can't wipe the slate clean of that I can't wipe the slate clean of the trauma that I'm left with and the fact that both of my children were born in a context which meant that I have did not get to just have a lovely pregnancy or a lovely, you know, early years with them. It was all much more complicated than that. And so the idea that forgiveness is just this wiping clean, if someone chops off our legs, we, you know, we can't ever get our legs back, um, even whatever else happens and whatever attitude we have towards them. And so I think there's something about the way that we understand forgiveness in the church that was really oppressive to me and was actually contributed and colluded with my ex-husband and with the abuse and so the first thing I had to do in terms of forgiveness was give up on the forgiveness that I'd, I'd taken hold of and understood that I was supposed to 
do and that forgiveness is not denial and so I think this again is where feminism comes in and, and, and becomes an important resource as for me as a Christian was the first thing I needed to know was that it's okay to be angry and I think a lot of women <laughs> a lot of women need to be told that it's okay to be angry and that we you know Jesus says we should count the cost before we do something so before we forgive we have to count the cost of what someone done to us and that can take years and it can take years because not just because we it can take years to actually understand the cost but because a new cost might come up years later you know we suddenly discover another way that that person's hurt isn't still affecting us or that still damages us or or means we've lost yet another thing and so so I think part of it is about us having to um give give up on the the false forgiveness this false kind of or you know I mean uh, Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace we have to give up on that stuff and reject it and say that there is a place for anger and for being really owning the hurt that someone has caused us and actually once we have gone through that process of course there is a space and for me I learned that forgiveness doesn't mean nullifying the consequences of somebody's behavior towards us. Um, I learned that forgiveness is not about rolling over and saying, which way do you want to hurt me today? It's about, it's actually makes us stronger. Um, and so for me, forgiveness is about having a right attitude of heart. Um, I mean, I think I say something in the book about, you know, forgiveness is when you no longer want somebody to be castrated without anesthetic. Is you know, like... <laughs> That you know, like that's that's a, that's a step forward, and um, I think for me, with with I do, I have totally forgiven my ex husband, but he doesn't have any contact with my children. I would fight to ensure that that doesn't happen because he's dangerous and not safe, and that's not that's not about hating him. That's about being the reality. And you know, we've seen over and over again, um, both in the US and in the UK, where churches have allowed re brought abusers in. We have this idea of the redemption narrative, this idea that every Everybody can be redeemed and it's a really wonderful thing but what it means is that we don't really have um, an understanding of the consequences of sin and um, we also we have a lot about how to deal with being the sinner we don't really have much about how do we deal with being sinned against and so I think for me forgiveness has absolutely been about liberation but so has rage and so has lots of part of the the this this journey to healing um but yeah forgiveness means that I don't I don't hate him in fact I just don't really think about it <laughs> and uh, and uh, but but that I put things in place to keep me and my children safe and Natalie you have remar- remarried haven't you since yes, then how were you able to trust men again after what what happened to you did was that was that difficult for you um well i didn't want to get married ever again and i didn't really i i i i think yeah kind of i would have been happy to stay single for the rest of my life <laughs> and uh, and it, it wasn't like i didn't hate men i you know i had a son and i had um you know and I think actually you know a lot of the time I get accused of being man-hating because of being a feminist or because of challenging some of the stuff that's out there but we never ever talk about when um, men abuse women when when men um, murder women and rape women and and hurt women in lots of ways we never call that woman hating but when a woman has an opinion and doesn't pat a man before she gives it she's seen as man-hating and like no you know that this (laughs) um, and so I don't I think you know if you think about all the ways 
ways that men hurt women, it is surprising that we actually can still coexist. You know, the amount of care and love that women continue to pour out on this world and not kind of set, set themselves up in some sort of colony, like the, you know, the Wonder Woman film where they just have like a woman only island. I just don't know, you know, like I think like, we should all be applauded for continuing <laughs> to con- to continue these relationships with men. But um, I never, I never really had a problem with men overall. And I don't have a problem with men. I think um, what what has happened over the years as I've become more aware of this stuff and, and one of the really important parts of my healing was realizing that my ex-husband was not some um, monster that like was not part of society that he was the logical conclusion of a society in which male entitlement and ownership of women is has been part of our history for a very long time you know men did own women for much of human history for the major the bible is full of men owning women and so so I, it has been really important to have a structural analysis that says this isn't just about me um, and him this is about a system in which men benefit in some ways from from living in a world where actually they can walk down the street at night and not think they're going to be raped because they're not going to be raped and and you know met women are often not going to be raped but they're taught that they are and and actually women are most likely to be sexually assaulted in their homes by somebody they know so I think um yeah I did I got married um I got married because God told me to marry the man who's now my husband and my first response was no I am not marrying him ever um he's uh, 13 years older than me and so I was like he is old <laughs> I was in my early 20s and I was just like no he's old and then um and then the more that I thought I wasn't going to marry him the more that uh god I just knew that this was what was going to happen and it was almost like god was protecting me from having to deal with all the complicated stuff around like having you know wanting to marry someone and then thinking oh am I making a bad decision and you know so yeah so eventually after about 18 months um of not really wanting to have the conversation in the end I said to God well if it's really you telling me to marry him you can also tell him to marry me and um, which he did thank thankfully so um yeah so basically we got married we've been married for uh, going towards 12 years now and uh, I'm I am for this record very happy to be married to him and he is very very wonderful and actually when we first got together um when we first got married it was really, really important that some of the things that he did, like I remember one time he rang me and he said, um, I'm going to be late home from work. Is it okay um, if I go if I go out with friends after work? And I was like, why are you ringing me? And he was like, well, those children are as much responsibility as, as, you, to, as yours as they are mine. And you might have made plans and your plans are just as important as mine. And you're, you, you know, I'm never going to presume you're just going to be available. And I was like, my mind is blown because I, I just thought it was my job. And I think a lot of the time in the church there's this presumption that nobody ever challenges the status quo and so i you know he sometimes the dj come like you created this monster <laughs> because he you know he gave he me empowered you. Yeah, get, yeah get it said that things didn't have to be how i just thought things had to be yeah. and so that then um so he's been at home with the kids for the last um Oh, maybe six years and um, does all the childcare and all the housework and all the shopping um, which is amazing but actually you know we I, I don't I don't want him getting I don't want everybody kind of standing up and applauding him because women have been doing this forever and they don't ever get any applause and so I say you know he's <laughs> he is wonderful but um, but we've got to be careful about not kind of having a double standard that puts him at a higher you know status than women who do the exact same thing and Natalie looking at the global context some of the statistics around trafficking slavery domestic abuse of women are really quite frightening aren't they um do you think misogyny and oppression of women is on the rise or are we just more aware of it 
Um, I just don't think it really depressingly. I don't, I don't think it really changes very much all the, t- all the time. So, um, I think we we have this idea in in the West that we um, that things are better here, and, and there is sometimes this idea that the problems over there, you know, with those people who aren't like us, kind of prog- progressed, you know, advanced humans, um, which is actually just very racist and colonial. Um, if we, if, if you know, people know anything about our history, the amount of rape of, of, of slaves and, and black, of black women and, you know, just the horror of, of what the, 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 the so-called developed nations have done to the developing nations is horrific. And, you know, we can't call ourselves progressed in any way. Um, and I think one of the things that I talk about is cultural unlesses, that every culture has unlesses. It's, and that, that is, it's not okay to hit a woman unless. And British culture, it's not okay to hit a woman unless uh, she's cheated on you or unless she's left you. And we know that because when men kill women, uh, the reports say about how he was heartbroken because she left him. And, and in other cultures and communities it's unless she doesn't kick the, cook the dinner properly unless she answers me back and so we look at someone else's unlesses and we go oh oh that's awful oh I bet it's much better over here when actually we just are invisible our unlesses are invisible to us um but absolutely the the once you start to look on a system a systematic way about how men's abuse women it is on every level all the time um, and, and like you say I think trafficking is a gendered issue um the majority of those who are trafficked whether male or female somebody who's the person who's making the most money is a man um when it comes to sex trafficking um it's it's definitely there's many more women and girls who are sex trafficked um and the 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 men who pay to sexually use those those um, women and girls are, are their men. Um, and so the money is made and the money is paid by men. And so we have to recognise that. It's not man-hating to say that there is a problem with a, a significant number of men abusing women in, and girls in our society. To go to a slightly lighter topic, <laughs> <laughs> your children, yes. you have two of them. Um, can you just talk to me a bit about how you're raising your children? Are you raising your boy and your girl differently? Um, and are, and how are you raising them to be aware of some of these issues around gender justice? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because I think as Christians, we often Christians are very aware that way the way we raise our kids, we need to help our kids living in a pluralistic society to know not everyone thinks like this or does this. You know, like when our kids were little, and sometimes when I'm when I'm talking to non Christians, they think I'm a monster when I say this. I can say everything else I say, but when I tell them that I, my kids always thought Santa Claus was a game. <laughs> It was not real. They like think I'm an actual monster. But you know, when our kids were little and we said Father Christmas is a game that we play, and um, we had to say to them, not everybody thinks like this, not everybody thinks that. And so you can't tell your friends that Father Christmas isn't real because they they it's their grown ups job to tell them that. And so a lot of how we've raised our kids has had that that framework of this is how we raise our kids and this is what we think is true, but not everybody thinks that, and so we have to be careful. And so um when they were little, um when they were about like four or five, we used to play the how many holes do I have game. Um, so like women have one more hole than men because women have a wee hole and a baby hole, whereas men just have the wee hole and the, you know, the one hole. Um, and so for us, it was about finding ways to have um, games that would enable them to know they owned their bodies and to build literacy about their bodies. Um, and so I suppose when they were tiny, we'd do things like that. We always, I always think one of my main rules in life, which is another reason why people don't want to be sat next to me at dinner party is if you don't want to talk about 
I talk about it. <laughs> That's like my rule for life. And so with my kids, anytime there was something I didn't want to talk about, I knew how to talk about. And so we've always been really comfortable talking about bodies in our house. Um, he's always tried to help them to see that the way that we do things and not the ways that everyone does that does things and um, there's a the comedian Robert Webb he talks about how with his kids he talks about the lie um that there's a lie that says that men have to be like this and women have to be like this and so when they, they their kids go to school and and then um, other children say no that's a boy's toy or that's a girl's toy or you're not allowed to do that the children know well no that's just because they believe the lie that boys and girls can only do certain things so I think that's a really helpful framework for doing doing stuff as well so when our kids were little we'd always critically engage with any media so when we'd watch tv programs if there were only men in um in dominant roles we'd talk about that if there were only white people doing stuff we'd talk about that and say oh why are there no black people on this program what's that's not very good is it and so um as they've got older they've now kind of well my my son is definitely much more uh, strongly advocating on like all justice issues than my daughter she generally is just like I mean she she said she wasn't a feminist the other day which is her form of rebellion I'm not a feminist mum um so so that you know that's fair enough but um you know he's my son's very very um justice focused and passionate and that kind of stuff so I don't think it's it's about giving them the skills to engage in the world and recognize that the world is that what they see isn't necessarily true um so we always look at music lyrics and just what sort of messages are coming through these songs and if we're not going to listen to it the reason we're not going to listen to it is it's not very kind about women um so yeah so as as they've grown up it's just been part of our conversations just as other people might talk about other stuff but we want we want them to have this idea that their bodies belong to them they always chose chose their own clothes even when they were tiny because this idea of it's, it's whose body is it is your body who gets to choose what put clothes go on that body you do and that led to some you know nice combinations of clothing but actually our children aren't you know props are they they're not mannequins they're human beings because I mean when my daughter um, wanted to start shaving her armpits and I was like <laughs> I was like this is the lie that patriarchy just took her to buy a razor on the way gave this lecture of like you can shave your arms if you want but you need to know that this is because of the patriarchy's lied to women and tell them they're only beautiful if they're hairless and we don't need to be hairless because God made us with hair and, you know but, but actually you know at first I hadn't let her and then she was changing her clothing because she didn't want anyone to see you know and I think that we as uh, as women we are kind of you know how many women don't shave their body hair even though we might know that we're doing it because of that but we never see women with with body hair so I think there's so many things that we we need to really be aware of and, and equip our children to be aware of even if they make choices to still do those things they know why they're doing that and finally you Natalie you seem to have an awful lot going on you've just written your book you you're running your um training consultancy business and you're doing all sorts of things um what's what's next is it mainly kind of promoting the book or what what are you what have you got set your sights on <laughs> oh do you know what i just um be going on a holiday <laughs> <laughs> i think for me i i always want to be open to what god is calling me to do next so i'm not very good at being strategic like what's your long-term plan do whatever god tells me <laughs> So um, I've written a program for women who've been subjected to abuse called the Own My Life course. And it's about building literacy around trauma. So um, that course is being piloted around the UK at the minute in um, Darlington, Grimsby, uh, Portsmouth and Kent. And then that's going to be rolled out across the UK. There'll be free training available. Um, it's not a Christian program, but it uses, uh, uh, you know, but it, it's it's about liberation. Um 
I also am doing a master's at the minute. Um, so uh, that's in theology and my dissertation is going to be around trauma and theology. Um, and and then I'm hoping to uh, potentially go on to do further academic study as well. But who knows? And I, yeah, I think just generally... I I think we've, we're in a bit of a shake-up in terms of Christian culture, that the Me Too movement, sadly, um, it wasn't until kind of the wider culture started to wake up to this stuff. You know, God will raise the prophets wherever the prophets will listen. Sadly, they weren't often in the church. And so um, the church is starting to wake up to this stuff, which is really exciting and really positive. I think what we have to be really careful as the church is that we don't move straight onto how things need to be better. And we've got to spend some time in repentance and mourning for all the ways that we have ruined lives, both in terms of sexual violence and in terms of male domination of women, but also in terms of our colonial heritage and the way that we have destroyed nations. And so we have a lot of, you know, we need at least like a decade of repentance. And I think it's probably a bit of a high goal, but you know, <laughs> that we could get Christians to, you know, mourn and really recognize the horror of what we've done. Um, but I suppose that's one of the things that I hope that we can uh, we can start to to challenge some of that stuff. And so, yeah, so I guess it's working out where is God in this and where does God want me in all this and continuing to try and move forward with that. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for here on Premier Christian Radio. But see you next week, same time, same place.